Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 6 and those verses we read together earlier. Last Sunday, someone asked me as they were leaving, uh, reflecting on these verses and the, the studies we've been doing so far in John chapter 6, whether or not this passage of Scripture teaches us that the Lord Jesus' body is present, His body and blood are present at the communion or the mass? It's a good question because it points up the difference between the Reformed and the Roman church. Do When we eat communion, when we eat the bread and the wine, or when we drink the wine at communion, are we eating and drinking the body and blood of the Son of God? And I suppose as we come to this passage tonight, it might be useful for us to come from that perspective, let's answer that question that I was asked last week. Uh, and hopefully in the process of doing that, we can apply it to ourselves in a, more, in a wider sense. Let's look at what the Scripture says so far. Here are some of the issues that I see right at the surface of the passage. Uh, and I invite you to see the same. The crowd is coming to Jesus. They're engaging in a conversation with Him. He's in the synagogue. Uh, we're told that, in fact, he was in the synagogue when he gave most of this talk about the bread of life, prompted probably by the reading of the day, which may very well have been from Exodus, the story of the giving of the manna. And so this discussion is going on. And the crowd have in mind one thing, and Jesus has in mind something else. The crowd has in mind eating material, physical bread, while Jesus is talking about spiritual bread. Uh, back in verse 26, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me because you saw signs. In other words, he's referring back to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. You saw signs because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's what they were thinking of. Or again, at the end of the passage that we read today, verse 58, 59, uh, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate. Not like the bread the, father, the fathers ate. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. They're thinking material bread. Jesus is thinking spiritual bread. Or, or look again here. The crowd are thinking about temporal bread, that is earthly bread. And Jesus is talking about eternal bread. So verse 27, do not labor for food that perishes, something that is temporal, something that is ephemeral, something that is passing. Rather, he says, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, because on him God the Father has set his seal. They were looking, thirdly, they were looking for bread from heaven, and Jesus wants to talk to them about the true bread from heaven. They, they say this to him. Look at verses 31 to 33. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. And my father now gives to you the true bread from heaven. In other words, the bread from heaven that the fathers ate, that physical manna that they ate, 
was actually only a pointer towards the true bread from heaven who was coming into the world and Jesus says has now arrived in the world. And then fourthly, we could say this, if I could put it in this rather bald, crass way, the crowd was talking about a loaf and Jesus is talking about a person. This is how he puts it. Look at this in verse 33 and 35. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So even if you look at the uh, the passage, in a sense, in a superficial way, you see that, that they're talking material, he's talking spiritual. They're talking temporal, he's talking eternal. They're talking about heavenly bread, he's talking about the true bread from heaven. They're talking about the sign, he's talking about the reality. They're talking about a loaf, he's talking about a person. That's the contrast that we see so far. So there's a a kind of superficial answer, I think, to your question. Is this a reference to communion? I think the answer is that certainly looking at the passage in that kind of objective way is not a reference to communion. In fact, communion or the Lord's Supper is not instituted until the end of Jesus' ministry. But we'll return to that in a moment. Let's look at this passage that we've been reading this evening from verse 41. Because when we get to verse 41, there's a change that you feel in the way in which it's introduced. Because John now uses this phrase or this expression, the Jews. And whenever he uses that, he's not referring to everybody in general. He's not referring to the Jews as a race. He's not referring to the people, uh, the crowd of people who had gathered around him. So up to now, we've had references to the crowd, the multitude, the crowd, the multitude. Now it's the Jews, and in John's gospel, that always refers to the Jewish leaders, the spokesmen, the religious leaders, the, the quasi-political, theological leaders of the nation. And their hostility to Jesus is growing. What is it that annoys them so much? That what annoys them we find out, is his very clear statement that he himself, in his own person, is the true bread that has come down from heaven. He is the one, and he alone is the one, who gives the satisfaction and salvation that God has promised. That he is greater than Moses, but he is greater than the manna. He is the true bread from heaven. And it is as a result of his claims that we discover that he provokes further rebellion in their hearts. They begin, we're told, verse 41, grumbling or murmuring against Jesus. And one of the things we've noticed as we've gone through this sixth chapter of John's gospel is the the number of connections that there are between Jesus and Moses. Moses is the greatest prophet they can think about. And when Jesus arrives on the scene and is speaking with such authority, they can't help themselves but link in their own minds or compare or contrast in their own minds Jesus and Moses. And one of the things that happened with Moses 
back there in Exodus chapter 16 is that when he had led the children of Israel out into the wilderness, having delivered them from Pharaoh and Egypt, and there they are in the desert, we're told that they began to grumble and murmur and complain against Moses. Let me read to you some of chapter 16 of Exodus. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. If you brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And what we discover is that these people, their, their ancestors, moved by unbelief, by resentment, by rejection of Moses' leadership, grumbled and murmured the same language that's used here of the Jews in Jesus' day. And the interesting thing is that back there in Exodus 16, the Lord explains very clearly to Moses, you know, they are grumbling not against you, Moses. They are grumbling against me. And Moses goes back to the crowd and he says to them, you know, you are grumbling not against me and against Aaron. You are really grumbling against the Lord. The Lord has done these things. And you in your heart are murmuring. You're grumbling against the Lord. And what they did in Moses' day, now they are doing when they have the Lord within striking distance. When the Lord has put skin on and the Lord has made himself vulnerable and accessible and available to them. What are they doing? This time they are grumbling against the Lord once more. And they're rejecting the fundamental claim that Jesus has made to be the bread from heaven. Listen to them as they talk. The Galileans have this idea in their head. We know, we know where this man is from. Look at verse 42. Is not this Yeshua, Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know all about this guy. We know his background. We knew his parents. We know where he came from in Nazareth. He grew up here. He is from Galilee. We know all there is to know about him. How can he say that he is the bread from heaven? In other words, what they're doing is they think they have Jesus taped. They think they know all about him. They make this astonishing, they, they make this astonishing assault upon the person of Jesus for making this exalted claim. Because they're focused only on his earthly origins. Of course they knew his parents, or at least what they thought was his father Joseph. Of course they knew his background. But that wasn't all there was to Jesus. There was the enfleshment of the Son of God. But seeing who Jesus really was required faith. Faith in his word. Faith in his word backed up by the very signs that had brought them looking for him there on the other side of the lake from the place where they'd been fed so miraculously when they had the feeding of the 5,000. Seeing Jesus requires faith that he has come down from heaven as the Son of God, that he is made incarnate, enfleshed as the Word of God. And without faith, you see, people will always 
grumble and murmur against him. They will stumble over him. Jesus stirs their rebellion. Jesus confronts their rebellion. John tells us they were murmuring and complaining to each other, but Jesus knows what's going on in their mind. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Don't grumble among yourselves, he says. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. What they think is possible or not possible by human reason. This is what they were thinking about, you see. This is absolutely impossible. We know this man, Jesus. We know he grew up here, that he was born of a woman, that he grew up in our region. And some of us knew his father, Joseph. So we know what we think we know about this man. It is impossible, therefore, that what he says about coming from heaven should happen. It is an impossibility. Jesus is saying to them, whatever you think is possible or not possible by human reason will not make one iota of difference, ultimately. What you think, what you think you know, what you are convinced of or not convinced of will never, ever bring you to faith in his name or give them eternal life that he gives. He's underlining, you see, to them, The sheer powerlessness of the natural person to seek and find salvation. There needs to be, there needs to be for anybody to see Jesus for who he is, this supernatural work of the Father in drawing people. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or drags him. In theology, we call this the effectual call of God. We talk about an effectual call and a general call. A general call is what the preacher gives or the individual believer gives whenever he invites anybody to come to Jesus. Jesus did this all the time, inviting, inviting people to come to follow him. But all that is only words. We're telling people they may come. We're urging them to come. We can't make them come. We cannot coerce them to come. But when God draws someone, when God calls someone, He always calls them effectually. Those that He calls and draws come to Him. And here's the process of their coming. This is how the Father draws people to the Son. He does so by teaching them. Look at what He goes on to say. He says this, No one can come unless the Father draws him, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. So there's this connection, you see, between the drawing and the teaching. The drawn are the taught. The drawn are the taught. And this connection between being taught of God and being drawn to Christ is an unbreakable connection. No one is taught of God and then decides not to come to God in Christ. This being taught of God produces the coming. This being taught of God happens when God takes His Word that is being explained or expounded, and He makes the individual who is hearing it understand it. He gives them understanding. He reveals it to them. He opens their eyes to see it. He opens their minds to grasp it. He enables their will to to embrace it. 
taught of God. In fact, if you look down in verse 45, you'll see the teaching produces the coming. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He's talking about this teaching, this illumination, this application of the Word of God to the mind and to the heart of the individual person. They're taught of God. How do you explain it? How do you explain that one person who has no great education grasps the things of God while someone else who is very highly qualified cannot see it? Cannot see it. Cannot grasp it. It's one of the miracles that I've seen over and over and over again. It's because everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. All of them come to Him. All of them. Because that work of God, of opening the mind, of opening the heart, and of, of working on the will and making the will willing to come, draws people invariably to Jesus. And do you see how Jesus describes it? Being taught of God hearing from God, learning from God, being drawn by God. It's all of God from beginning to end. It's all of God. And we're left with no part to play in this process. So how does God teach a person so effectively that he comes to Christ? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So how do I know a thing is of God? If it leads me to Jesus. Well, that immediately, doesn't it? That immediately challenges many of the great religions of the world, doesn't it? Anyone who has heard and learned from God goes to Jesus. That's a very clear categorical statement that Jesus is making. And he uses language, by the way, that comes from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13, where God is speaking about salvation for his people. That God will take these confused, desolate people and He will give them a true knowledge of salvation. He says to the children of Israel, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. And this knowledge of salvation is part and parcel of what happens in the new birth. Uh, Jeremiah talks about it in Jeremiah 31 when he's talking about the new covenant. And he says, Jeremiah says, or this is what God says through Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I'll write it in their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now, there you have it. There's the new birth. There's the illumination that comes with the new birth. There's the understanding that comes when God works in the heart. There's the effects of it, the forgiveness of sins, and the putting away of the memory even of sin. And that happens to each individual. That happens to every believer. That is the mark of the believer. They are taught of God. And come, Christ comes, you see, and he, he quotes this because here he is. He is the final revelation of the glory of God. And to see Christ as true and glorious and to come to him is what the world needs. It's what you need. It's what I need. Jeremiah says it is to know the Lord. It is to know him. Not only know, knowledge in a kind of 
object of intellectual way, the way I know that one and one equals two, to know the Lord is, is experimental knowledge. It is to know Him, to, to, to grasp Him, to embrace Him, to, to have my affections stirred by Him. It is to know the Lord. It is to know that God Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, the King of Israel and Lord of all the universe, is incarnate in Jesus Christ, that when I see Jesus, I see Almighty God with skin on. I see the enfleshed, the enfleshment of God. And what Jesus makes clear is that no one will come to this salvation on their own merit or by their own energies or in their own strength. They will come because God draws them. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. But it emphasizes how powerless we are apart from the work of God. And you say to yourself, well, I haven't seen this yet. I haven't grasped this yet. I'm still a long way off from doing this. What do I do about it? This is what you do about it. You ask God to make you willing in the day of His power. You seek Him. You call on His name. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You want to come to Jesus, but you say you can't. Ask Him. There are energies that He bestows on those who ask Him to enable you to come. Now, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? That when we talk about the gospel, we are asking. When we're, when we're giving what I called earlier, the general call of the gospel, what are we actually asking people to do? We're asking people to do what they cannot do in and of themselves. We're asking them to come to Jesus. We're asking people to believe what they can't believe in their own wisdom. We're asking lame people to walk, blind people to see, deaf people to hear, dead people to rise. All of those are metaphors the Bible uses. That's what we're asking them to do. The gospel calls a person to do precisely what they cannot do in and of themselves. Something only God can do. And yet that is the process that Jesus describes. Coming to Jesus is ultimately not something we choose to do or can opt to do in our own strength. You see the way Jesus puts it here. Look at this. There's the drawing by the Father. There's the coming to Jesus. And there's the welcoming by Jesus. And there are no black holes. There are no spaces. There are no places where you can fall out of the loop of that process. Those that God draws come to Jesus. Those that come to Jesus are welcomed by Jesus. You can't fall between any of those pieces of the puzzle. Or, or to stand back further from the passage, there's a giving on the part of the Father. There's a coming on the part of men and women. There's a receiving on the part of Jesus. What Jesus is doing is actually addressing his disciples here. Although the crowd's listening in, he's talking to his disciples and reassuring them and giving them confidence. He's reassuring them that this work that's begun in them will be completed on the day of Jesus Christ. And unless there's this work of divine renewal in us, none of us would ever come to Christ. That's what the Jews are grumbling about. They're complaining about this. Because as Jesus teaches this stuff that we've been looking at in this chapter, what is it doing? It is going right against the grain of our human nature, which is always self-justification. It is that we want to contribute something. We want to add something. We want to 
be our own master, the master of our own fate and destiny. We want to be the one that calls the shots. We want to have our own choices and our own decisions. Jesus is knocking all of that away, pushing all of that away, crushing all our desire for autonomy. Martin Lloyd-Jones once preaching in Romans 3 said this about a Christian, defined a Christian in these terms, a Christian is a man or a woman whose mouth has been shut. There is this gravitational pull in our lives towards self-justification. And when you come up to face-to-face with this teaching of Jesus, your mouth is shut. You can't justify yourself. There is this gravitational pull towards boasting. We want to boast about what we have done, tell people what we have accomplished. And we are silenced in the presence of a God who alone can save us. We are silenced. We have nothing to say, nothing to plead, nothing to argue. Unless my Father draws you, you have nothing with me, Jesus says. Nothing. And in verse 46, he becomes explicit about his own uniqueness. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father. There he's blowing away the mysticism that that imagines that there ever can be amongst us humans those who have a visionary sight or mystical experience of God as He is. No one has seen the Father. Only the Son has seen the Father. And you come to know the Father and to see by faith the Father only as you come to Jesus. Well, we, we need to rush on. Jesus has been using this figurative language of bread from heaven. And then he's used non-figurative language to describe people who believe in him, who come to him, and so on, and are received by him. He repeats this language again in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. They, They quote it, and then now he quotes it again, or he says it again, verse 51. And he adds a figurative piece of language again. This time he says this, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Here's a secret contained in what he's been saying. The bread that gives eternal life, the bread that Jesus is, and the bread that Jesus gives is his flesh for the life of the world. Now, this is where the Reformed and the Romans part company. Is this sacramental language? Is it sacramental language without sacramental significance? Is there any reference here to the Lord's Supper? How do we answer those questions? In two minutes. First of all, I remind you that Jesus has been speaking of himself as the one who is the bread of life and gives the bread of life. Here he talks about giving his flesh for the life of the world. We know exactly what that means. In John's gospel, where does flesh appear? Right at the very beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word is God. The Word became what? Flesh. Flesh. Flesh represents Jesus in his humanity. Flesh is what they nailed to the cross 
Real flesh. Flesh like yours. You feel your, the skin of your fingers, your knees. Squeeze it. That's flesh. That's you. That's what you are. Jesus took on our flesh. It was in our hands and feet that he was pinned to the cross. The flesh that was given for the life of the world is given in death. It's given on the cross for our salvation. That's why the heavenly Son of God descended to earth, that he might be lifted up, as we've already seen in chapter 3, lifted up to die and become the means by which salvation is possible for people. So he's speaking about himself. And when he talks about his flesh, he's talking about the very, very real suffering that he has to do in order to be our Savior. Second, Jesus has described the experience of knowing God's salvation using language up to now of hearing, believing, and coming. All of those are fairly straightforward. You hear something, you believe something, you go to someone. Now he uses this metaphor, figure of speech. He adds to those the metaphor of eating. And he makes no concessions to the crowd. The crowd, do you notice, they're very offended by this. They think he's talking cannibalism. They know that that's been forbidden by the Mosaic law in Leviticus chapter 19. But I want you to notice that he's not talking cannibalism. He's not being strictly, crassly, literal here because of the connections, you see. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Come into Jesus as the bread of life to still the hunger of your soul is the same as believing in him. Okay? Now compare verse 54 with verse 40. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day day. So you see, the looking, the hearing, the believing, the coming, the eating, all refer to the same thing. Augustine, the great father of the church, says, believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten, commenting on this very text. When you believe in Jesus, you've eaten. What do you do when you eat? You take something and you make it your own. You put it in your mouth. You eat to it. You swallow it. It's, you've taken it. You've gone to it. You've lifted it. You've made it your own. That's what it is to believe. That's what it is to come to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is to make Jesus, receive Him as your own. It's to, it's to have Him. It's to embrace Him. That's what it means. And so it's a figurative in the context. You just need to look at the context. You just need to actually read the blessed passage for yourself, and you'll see that eating the flesh and drinking the blood is the same as the looking on Jesus and the believing in Jesus and the hearing of Jesus and the coming to Jesus and the same effects. You notice, have eternal life. I will raise him on the last day. Have eternal life. I will raise him on the last day. 
believe and you have eaten. And here's my third and last point. The Lord's Supper wasn't even instituted when Jesus said these words. So it is a historical anachronism to read the Lord's Supper back into what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry. And that's a fundamental issue. But, on the other hand, John Calvin will be happy to know that I agree with him on comments that he makes when he's referring to this and says this. He says this, listen. This, this body of teaching that Jesus did early in his ministry, in which he's talking about himself and people coming to him, believing in him, receiving him, welcoming him, and him welcoming them, this teaching is taken up and figured and presented to believers in the Lord's Supper. Indeed, he goes on to say, we might say that our Lord intended the Holy Supper to be the seal of this discourse. In other words, this discourse is not about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is an outward sign and seal of the teaching Jesus gave. In other words, when you come to the supper, you're reminding yourself that you have come to Jesus, that you have received Jesus, that you have rested on Jesus, that you have eaten of Jesus. And when you eat the bread and you drink the cup of the Lord's Supper, you are remembering that. You're looking back to that experience. You're reminding yourself all of your salvation has been secured when you believed on and heard Him, and were taught of God, and were drawn to Him, and trusted in Him, and rested on Him, and received Him. So the Lord's Supper isn't a reenactment of Calvary, and the bread does not become the flesh of the Son of God, because He's all intact. The Son of God is intact in glory. The glorified man, Christ Jesus. But at the Supper... As we eat and drink, we eat and drink the sign and seal of what Jesus was talking about here. This is what it means to be a believer. It means to come, to taste, to see, to receive, to partake of, to embrace Jesus for myself. For myself. Next time you sit in communion, the bread comes around and you take it. You took Jesus. Remember you took Jesus? When the wine comes around, you take it and you drink it. Remember, you took Jesus for yourself. What God is saying to you in the supper is, what you did by faith, what you did without sight, what you did purely, in a sense, by the grace of God, by an act of, of belief, sheer trust in your own heart, it's real. God puts something visible, something tangible, something edible in your hands and in your mouth to say what you did in your heart was real. It was real. It was as real as you taking a literal bit of bread and a little cup of wine at communion as a sign of your initial faith in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus has offered it to us in the gospel whole 
as the resurrected and exalted man in heaven. We thank you that he alone meets the needs of our souls in their deepest shape and form. We come to pray that tonight you would help us to hear him, to be taught of God, to learn of him, and then to trust him. And help us, Lord, next time we come to the Lord's table to see in the very actions of taking and eating a memorial and a, a figure of our own trust in him, coming to him and receiving him. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.